All right, church. If you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I hope you'll make your way to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's where we're headed. Again, I apologize for my voice. Um, I, I was hoping, I was telling someone earlier, my, my hope is every time I have a sick voice, I hope it drops a couple of octaves, you know, so at least I'll get that cool preacher voice that's like David Jeremiah or something, and that hasn't happened yet, so maybe by the end of the service it will. But anyways, I hope you'll make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're making your way there, I'll give you a little introduction, a reminder of where we've been. The first six chapters of this book, as we've moved along, we've seen Paul very much speaking with regards to exhortation, rebuke, addressing issues of things that he's aware of within this church, and there are many issues. And then as we got to chapter 7 last week, we saw a, a shift in his tone. Things change a bit. He's now beginning to address questions that they have, comments that they've made, and his tone has become much more, there's more of an interaction, if you will. There's more of this counsel that's being given, uh, application for wise living, how to apply this newfound faith that the Corinthians have. Remember, this is still a, a fairly new church. They're fairly young. And so you've got people from all sorts of backgrounds all over the Roman world. They're in Corinth. They've come to faith. And now they're trying to figure out, how does this look in my life? To follow Jesus, what does it look like? How, how is it fleshed out in all of my relationships? And so chapter 7, primarily, Paul is devoting to those type of relationships, the most intimate relationships, marriage. Last week, we, we began by looking at some of that. Paul also referenced uh, singleness. And so we saw that both of those should be regarded as gifts. They are gifts from God. Um, he's going to say much more later uh, with regards to singleness as well. So I know there was only a couple of verses last week, but he's going to circle back in the weeks to come. And as we jump into the text this morning, we are going to see uh, there, there is a statement. It's not as though it's all counsel per se. Uh, he, he's going to make some exhortation and uh, make some commands as well. That is present in this text. But I, I'll just say this as we get into this text. We're going to move, Lord willing, from verse 10 through verse 17, and it's a bit of a difficult text. And it's not that it's particularly difficult because of the exegesis. It's fairly straightforward. It, it's difficult because this text pushes up on our preferences. It, it's very counter to what our culture says. It's very counter to what many of our churches affirm. And so as we get into this, it, it may be uncomfortable. And I, I'll, I just want to recognize this as well. I, I'll say I have probably a more conservative view on marriage and remarriage than many, even than other, I know, many good and godly pastors that don't share the same view uh, as I do. But what I, I hope and my ambition for us as we get into this text is that whatever conviction we may end up with, that how we get there comes through wrestling with God's Word. That our convictions are developed out of Scripture, not out of preference. Not out of what the culture says, or what feels right, or what's acceptable culturally. Okay? So that's, that's my pastoral exhortation as we begin this. That we allow Scripture to 
inform and dictate our convictions, not our preconceived notions, all right? So I hope that we'll do that. Let me go ahead. I'd just like to begin by reading the text, picking up in verse 10, and I'll read through verse 17, then I'll pray, and we'll begin to unpack this, all right? I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It says, To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does, if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Let me pray for us. Father, again, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Lord, that it is right, it is true. And Lord, I just pray that this morning, as I often pray, and Lord, as I sense such a necessity this morning, that, that your word would, would pierce, but it would do so, Lord, like a, a scalpel used by a master surgeon that, that cuts out and removes uh, sinful, cancerous tumor, or things that are harmful for us, Lord, that, that it might be for healing and not for, for killing or, or wounding, Lord, but rather for healing. And so, Father, I pray you might do that work in us through your word today by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious. I pray for your help in this, Lord, that you might give me proper balance and sensitivity to your spirit. Lord, that, that I might speak with a, a tone of love. Lord, I, I can do all things, but if I do it apart from love, it's useless. And so, Father, may that just permeate this text and this message this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, so let's jump into this. Picking up in verse 10 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. It says, But to the married I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. So there it is as he begins this. Here's that one time in this text, in this chapter, that he's going to say, this, this is not just my advice. This is coming from the Lord. He's clarifying this. And I think in a moment, I'll point us to where he actually has in mind. He's considering the Lord Jesus and his teachings on this matter. He says that a wife should not leave her husband. Now, remember how so much of chapter 7 had begun. Everything that he said about the husband, he said about the wife. Everything he said about the wife, he said about the husband. There was this equality all the way through with both spouses. It's the same here. If you go to the latter half of verse 11, he says the husband should not divorce his wife. So the wife ought not leave her husband. The husband ought not divorce his wife. There's equality. The expectation is the same for both. That's God's desire 
his purpose in marriage, that it not end in divorce. Now, look in the middle here in verse 11, the beginning of verse 11. But if she does leave, that's interesting, Paul, that he chooses to do that. But if she does, this is what I so often point out in Paul and in Scripture that I love. Paul does not operate in an idyllic world removed from the reality of sin. He's acknowledging that we live in a sinful world where we're busted and we make mistakes. And though God's intention for marriage is that it is lifelong, it is lasting, that a husband shouldn't divorce his wife and a wife shouldn't leave her husband, he knows that that happens. And he knows that as he's writing this church in Corinth, that that is the case for some. Just as it is, I'm sure, for some of us here today, and in probably every church all over the world, that that's a reality. But if it does, if, if she does leave, if he does leave, I think this is, again, going both ways, and I'll point that out here in a moment as we go over to the teachings of Jesus on this. But he says this exhortation. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now again, I think what Paul has in mind here is specifically what Jesus himself had taught on this topic. I think that's in part why he says this is from the Lord. He knows what Jesus taught. And so let's, let's jump over for just a moment because Jesus says things even more explicitly than what Paul does here, okay? So look with me, if you have your Bibles, over to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 10. You can keep a finger over in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> now Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking and he's going to be tested, if you will, by some Pharisees. They're going to ask him some questions and one in particular. And then his disciples afterwards are going to ask some follow-up questions. And so we're going to get glimpses of both, his response to both, all right? I think what Paul is saying is very much, I think he's drawing from chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, what Jesus says there. But I want to back up for just a moment because I think it's helpful for us as we consider this. If we back up to verse 2, look with me, verse 2, and I'll just begin there. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So that's the question, and that's the question presented even today. It, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? I love how Jesus answers questions with questions. There's a lot of wisdom in that, right? What did Moses command you? He asked. And they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, that's a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 when Moses does such. So there is this allowance, this permission, if you will, but what does Jesus now say in light of this? Because he's going to speak into this. He says, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because of your hardness of heart, that falls short of an endorsement. 
it, it seems as though he's careful not to even legitimize, per se. But he does acknowledge it. It happens. Because of your hardness of heart, but it, it's not ideal, and it is indeed not what God has intended. Now look where he goes next. Look as he moves forward in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he, he moves directly into from the beginning. This is God's purpose. This is His ordaining. This is how He designed this to be. That marriage, this institution, would be between a man and a woman for a lifetime. And let, let no man separate it, He says. Let no man separate it. That's the ambition. That's, that's the intent. That's the desire for marriage. Now, we can consider even more. Praise God for progressive revelation as we move through Scripture. You, you get even further as we just consider the purpose and the institution of marriage. We can go over into the book of Ephesians. And Paul there writes, maybe most pointedly, the ultimate purpose in marriage. What is that ultimate purpose? That in marriage, there is a display of of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ towards His church. That's what it is. That our marriages, the, the, the one flesh union is intended to be a portrait to the world of the Lord Jesus Christ and His unending love and affection for His bride, for His church. That's what it's intended to be. That's the display. That's, that's what our marriages are to represent to the world around us. That's what they should be able to see. They should understand better how Jesus loves His church by how we love our spouse. Now, look what happens next. Let's, let's just keep moving for a moment. This is where I think Paul is citing from in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look with me in verse 10, 11, and 12. He says, this is still in Mark. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. So they wanted some recap. All right, Jesus, we heard you say this, but we, we need a little more clarity here. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces, excuse me, if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, She's committed adultery. Church, those words are probably incredibly offensive to most. Even within the church. The, the words of our Lord Jesus often offend us. Should they? That, that the Lord would say this. You say, well, how, how can you say this, Jesus? Now, Paul, he, he, he stopped short of saying this explicitly, but it's, it's certain that's where he's going. That's the implication, that she must remain unmarried. He must remain unmarried. Why is that? 
to not move into adultery. Church, might it be, as we just consider marriage and what it is intended for, the ultimate purpose in this display of the love of Jesus for His bride, for His church, might it be that, that we have so lessened our view of marriage. We've so brought it down. We've, we've diminished this, this view of it, this lofty view of marriage. We brought it down to the same level that the world sees it at. And we consider it the same way that everyone outside the church does. Might that be the case? Might that be why this is so offensive to us? Because we don't hold the same view that Jesus does? I think, and this is probably an insufficient analogy, but I, I hope it helps. I, I think in many ways, the world sees marriage much like a used car, all right? And here's what I mean by that. You get your car, and you're really excited about it, and it's got all these features you really like, and it makes you happy. And you drive it until it doesn't make you happy anymore. And so what do you do? Well, there's this new latest, greatest model. It's got all these features. It'll make me happy. Therefore, I go, I sign my car over, hand it over, sign on the dotted line, get a new one. And now it makes me happy. And so I drive that. And I drive that car because it makes me happy until it doesn't. And then I sign it over and I get another one. And, and that's how the world so often views marriage that it's just a contractual relationship about making me happy. And when it doesn't, I sign it over and get another one. I trade out, trade up. That's just what you do. That's how the world sees marriage. And I fear that too many of us within the church view marriage the same way. And we don't fight for marriage or the institution of it, the, 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 the glorious union that it is, the way that we all Let's do this for just a second. Let's keep that same analogy and let's press it a little further. What if we were to apply the words of Jesus here into that same analogy? What would that look like according to what Jesus says for the believer? It means maybe a believer comes to a place of divorce. They sign on the dotted line. But rather than trading out and trading up, from that point on, they walk. You walk. Why? Because of the regard for marriage instituted by God. And, and here's the thing. If, if this is indeed to be an illustration for the world to see the wonderful love that Jesus has for His bride, at, at what point might this happen? Let's push it a little further. Getting everything out of this analogy we can. At what point might the world look at all these Christians that are walking around? At what point do they pull over and say, why are you walking? Why aren't you just trading out, trading up? Why, why, why aren't you remarrying? Why aren't you just doing this and this and this? And Might they begin to recognize a difference in how the world sees marriage and how the church views marriage? Might the church then maybe begin to have a stronger witness by our marriages? 
Statistically speaking, divorce impacts those within the church just as much as those outside the church. Might it be that our view of marriage has so greatly diminished and become like that of the world? Now, I know you may have 10,000 scenarios running through your mind right now. What about this? What about this? What if this? I, I think, I don't know this, but I, I think, maybe, just maybe, that many of those scenarios that you're bouncing around in your mind might fit contextually better in verse, this is back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, might fit better in verses 12 through 16 than it does in verses 10 and 11. Because verses 10 and 11 is speaking directly to two born-again, regenerate, submit-one-to-another spouses. And, and the expectation is, if you've got two believing, regenerate spouses that submit one to another, at some point, no matter the disagreement, at some point, they should be able to be reconciled. They should. That, that would be the expectation for believers. That if we submit one to another, we eventually work things out. But verses 12 and following address a different situation. It's a different scenario here. Look with me. Verse 12 and following. It says, but to the rest I say. Now, now this is the notation. This is, this is how we know for sure he's talking about believing couples prior to this. And here he's moving into believer, non-believer, okay? It says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who is an unbelieving, excuse me, who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now, we know that believers ought not seek out to marry non-believers so as to be unequally yoked. But I think probably what, what's happening in this scenario is that the gospel had been proclaimed broadly. And some households came to faith as a whole. Praise God for that. We, we look forward to that. We hope for that. But you know, sometimes only one spouse gets saved. One might reject the faith, the other accepts. So what about in those scenarios? And we've, we've been in 1 Corinthians long enough to know that probably a question being asked by these Corinthians is, okay, I'm a believer now, my spouse isn't. Do I need to get a divorce so that I'm not corrupted? So that I can be more holy? Do I, do I need to do that? To which Paul begins to address in this way. If they consent, maintain the marriage. That's better. It's, it's better to maintain the marriage, to stay in that. Now, notice what he grounds this in. Verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Now, what does he mean there? Does he mean for sure that they're going to get saved? No, that's not what he's saying here. I think what Paul means to say here is that if you have an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse, they don't cancel one another out and you get a neutral marriage. No, the, the believing spouse is going to have a positive effect 
on the marriage. The marriage itself is going to move in Christ's likeness because of that one believer. And it, it may be even to the surprise or maybe the total unawareness of the unbeliever. They may have no clue about this, but their marriage is going to look better because of the believing spouse. I think that's what he means. And that by default, the presence of the believer in the marriage may lead to the non-believer coming to faith. That could happen. Now, Paul's very clear. He says in verse 16, how do you know? How do you know whether you'll save your husband? You don't. You don't know. It may happen, it may not. But it could. He goes on to say, also with regards to children. He says, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Now, now what does he mean there? That's kind of weird the way he phrases it. But essentially, if, if the marriage ends, if, if the believing spouse was to step away, and say the child went with the unbeliever, well, they now have no gospel presence in that child's life. And so Paul's saying it's better that for the children, they see a believing parent. Maybe they don't have two believing parents, but one is better than none. And it's a positive effect. It's a positive impact on that child's life. Now, verse 15, again, Paul's in check with reality. What does he say? Yet, if an unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The reality is, in the closest of intimate human relationships, if you have a believer and an unbeliever, there's a real possibility that relationship may not last. Because the ideals, the affections, Everything is so incredibly different. So it, it may not, it, it may come to a place where it, it can't continue. It's possible. If, if it can, persist in it, Paul says. But if it can't, he says, let them leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And what does he mean? Let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. I, I think what Paul means here is that the believing spouse ought not wage war within themselves saying, if I can just stick this out, if I can just hang in there, if, if I can just, then, then my spouse will come to faith. If I can just endure this this trouble a little longer, if I can just endure this for this sake. And Paul says, he says, you don't know whether they'll get saved. Don't use that as a crutch. You don't, you don't know. So let them leave. God's called us to peace. Now, I think there's a major distinction here in what Paul's saying in the allowance of allowing the unbeliever to leave the marriage here, this departure here in this relationship. There's a major distinction here in what we see up in verse 11 when he says, or else be reconciled to her husband. Or he be reconciled to his wife. The expectation is for, for the believing spouses that they work... How do I say this? If... if if what's said of the believer-non-believer relationship is allow them to leave, 
the expectation for the two believers is you work as hard as you can at resolving this. You labor for this marriage to come to a place of reconciliation for the believers in submitting one to another, okay? Now, what do you do with a text like this? Look at verse 17. I think verse 17 helps us in part because it sums up much of what Paul's saying here and it also acts to propel us towards what we're going to see next week and in the weeks ahead. He's going to say this very thing three more times in, in, in the next couple of verses, but we'll save that for later. Look what he says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And also I direct in all the churches. What does he mean by that? He's saying this is the orthodox teaching that I proclaim in all the churches that I have any influence in. This is standard, if you will, doctrine for Paul's churches. Standard practice. The standard exhortation that he gives. When he says the Lord has assigned to each, let him continue to walk in that manner. What Paul desires here, and I think what he confronts, is this inclination in our hearts to say, I have to become something else in order to walk the path of obedience. Paul's saying, don't do that. You don't have to. It's like coming to faith when you're single and thinking, okay, well, now in order to progress in my holiness, I have to get married. No, you don't. You don't have to do that. Or it would be like being in your second marriage, coming to a realization of where you are and saying, okay, well, I have to end this marriage and go back to my former marriage and seek reconciliation. No, you don't do that. In fact, Scripture speaks specifically against that. You don't do that. You, you begin where you are. And, and God moves from where you are, where He's called you, where He's stirred you in this, to walk that path of obedience forward. Now, Let's, let's end here. Let's head over to the book of John, John chapter 4. This is where I want to draw us to a close this morning. John chapter 4. Because I, I know that a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here, our, our temptation may be to feel beat down or guilty or heavy or frustrated, and I don't think that's the purpose of the text. I, I think that's a testimony to our own heart and our own sinfulness and our own conditioning from the world in which we live, and, and I, I don't think that Scripture is desirous for us to feel that way right now. And so look with me in John chapter 4, because I, I think this is really helpful for us. John chapter 4, it's Jesus, and he's having a conversation with the woman at the well. And the woman at the well is someone who's interesting in part because she's there in the middle of the day when nobody else is there and she has this conversation with Jesus and Jesus knows and recognizes, instructs her or informs her of something that she's very well aware of, that she's had five husbands. She's had five marriages. And the person that she's with presently is not her husband. So six guys. So she's 
certainly transgressed the institution of marriage on multiple fronts here. And, and I just want to point out in this, how does Jesus interact with this lady? What does he do? Does he condemn her? No, he doesn't. Does he call her out on all this? That's not what he does. In fact, you, you back up, what did he just say prior to that? He says, if you would ask me for water, if you'd ask me for a drink, I would give you water that leads to eternal life. I'll give you life. I'll give it to you in abundance. He, he's there to extend salvation and repentance and restoration. And church, that's what God has for you today. I, I don't know what your history, your past may be with regards to divorce, remarriage, marriage, wherever you are. I don't, I don't know. But I know that we all have a lot of baggage from wherever we've come from. And sometimes that's before we came to faith. And sometimes we pick up some baggage even while we're believers, right? And what would God desire us to do with that? He confronts us where we are, desires repentance, and that we move forward in the path of obedience from where we are. So I don't, I don't know what you've dealt with in the past. But God desires us to walk in obedience from here forward. And maybe there's some things we need to repent of. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I got a lot of baggage and you've never come to faith. And you hear about this Samaritan woman who's got all this stuff going on in her life and that Jesus would extend salvation to her. He'll extend that to you today as well if you'll receive it. He wants to give you life. He wants to forgive you. And it doesn't matter how busted up you are. He'll take you as you are. Praise God for that. You, you don't have to get cleaned up, brushed up in order to get to Jesus. Okay? He meets us where we are. And He begins that work of sanctification and transformation in our hearts and our lives. And molds us in Christ-likeness. So friends, I, I'm going to pray for us here in just a second and I'll be available outside it's not I don't think it's deluging right now like it did last week but um, I'd be happy to pray with you I know some other folks would be as well I want you to be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning alright and maybe you've never followed the Lord Jesus maybe you've never asked for forgiveness and today you sense a stirring in your heart I'm not doing that I can't do that. I can't control your heart. That's the Holy Spirit. And if He's stirring in you and He's compelling you to ask for forgiveness, you do that. All right? And you come share that with one of us because we'd love to celebrate with you. All right? I'm going to pray and you be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning. Let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for this morning. And I thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray. Lord, I, I just, Isaiah 55 just came to mind. Lord, your word, it always accomplishes exactly what you've set forth for it to accomplish. And Lord, I trust that you would do that today, even in a text that feels difficult and hard and uncomfortable and so against maybe even our, our own practices and acceptances. And Lord, I just pray that, that our, our minds, our perceptions, our views... Lord, towards marriage, towards you, Lord, would be like that of the Lord Jesus. Lord, that we would be more Christ-like. We would be more Christ-minded. 
Lord, that, that we wouldn't just settle for seeing things as the world sees it. But Father, we would have your heart, your mind, your eyes, your convictions. Lord, help us in that. Lord, grow us. Lord, let us also, as we do so, Lord, just walk forward in the path of obedience with our, with our arms spread out, trying to take as many people with us as we can. Lord, saying the very thing that, that you said. Lord, that, that come as you are. We, we don't have to become one thing before we begin to walk in obedience. No, you confront our hearts where we are. And so, Father, I pray you might do that work this morning. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.